Amen. Thank you, worship team. Go ahead and have a seat if you're not seated already. Can you all hear me in the microphone okay? That's important because we have families upstairs who've got to hear the microphone or else they won't be able to know what's going on. Hello, everyone up in the Fellowship Hall. Thank you for joining us live via feed. We've got Bibles and uh, note sheets coming out to you right now. These are just uh, hopefully a little bit <clears throat> of a helpful tool to keep you focused and to give you a place to write down your thoughts. I know that sometimes the Holy Spirit's going to bring to mind things that, uh, that, you didn't, uh, that I didn't expect uh, to, to come up from the sermon. And so if, if the Lord is speaking to your heart through the scripture, then write that down. We don't want you to forget what he's doing. Uh, but if the notes are just a hindrance to you, if they just get in the way or distract you, go ahead and ignore them. Feel free to do that. Um, we have Bibles. If you need one, go ahead and raise your hand. We would love for you to have a scripture. We're going to be uh, jumping around a bit today in our message as we've been uh, we're looking at the ways that Jesus Christ unifies us and how his coming to earth uh, is such a blessing to us because it's breaking down the, the borders and the boundaries of separation uh, that do us harm. And so if you've got your Bibles, uh, we're going to be flipping through to various scriptures today. I'm glad to see that nobody got into a fist fight over their seats. That was a really big concern of mine. When you get second service and first service clash, it can be a little bit crazy, you know. You sat in that seat uh, ever since you started coming, and, and suddenly you realize that there's somebody else who sat in that seat ever since they started coming too. So thank you for the grace that you showed one another. We're very grateful. Even that it's a little bit crammed in here, we're happy for that. We're happy to be able to come together as one family on a Christmas uh, Eve morning like this and to celebrate the birth <clears throat> of Jesus Christ, our King. I, uh, I brought this little, this little toy up. This is a, a fun little toy that a friend of ours made for the boys. I, who was this for? Was this for Henry? It's for Samuel when he was a, a newborn. Uh, a man who was going to our church at the time crafted this in his wood shop, and it has withstood the test of time. Uh, many of you are going to give your kids toys this Christmas that are going to have some assembly required. Right, you know, they write it right out there on the package, uh, which means that they only did part of the work for you. Uh, but they don't put a little label on that says sometimes that reassembly is required. When you have five boys, then, uh, then toys tremble uh, to be in, in the Neves household. We break a lot of stuff. And as you can see, this, this cute little plane made of wood here, the propeller has broken. And it's not the first time. It's broken and I fixed it four or five different times. There's another part of the propeller that needs to be connected to this part so that it will stay on the airplane. But uh, unfortunately, it has been lost to the test of time. Maybe it'll show up eventually stuck in a couch cushion somewhere. Who knows? But uh, even if I had that piece, in order to fix this, this toy and make this propeller work the way it should, I would have to have some kind of a binding agent to make the left side of the propeller fit with the right side of the propeller. I would either have to have some glue or some nails, perhaps some screws, maybe some wire to wrap around it. I would need something to bring those two pieces together because they're not just going to stay together on their own. You set two pieces of wood together like that, let them go, they're just going to fall apart. You've got to have some kind of a binding agent or else the two pieces of wood are not going to remain together. Likewise, without Jesus Christ... The bond between man and God is broken. There is no way that we can dwell with God. There is no way that we can remain close to God unless Jesus Christ, His special Son, binds us together with Him. In fact, God's Son was born more than 2,000 years ago in order to repair the damage 
that our sin has done to our relationship with the God who has made us. To really grasp this fact, we, we've got to know a little bit about the unique nature of God Himself. So, so first thing I want to share with you today is that God is, by definition, holy and good. And many of you would just nod to that. Yes, this is something we already know, but it's worth mentioning. Because in the world that we live in, people all over the place are coming up with ideas of what they think God is, of the kind of character that God represents in their own mind. And we want to make sure that the God we're talking about this morning is the God of Scripture. Because that is what God has revealed to, him, uh, to us about Himself. This is God from God's perspective. The God of the Bible is a God who is holy, which means He is set apart, He is unique from the rest of all that He has made, and He is good. So the way that He lives is, is never wrong or, or defiled or bad. God is, in Himself, the perfect expression of love. He is, at the same time, the perfect expression of truth. He never lies. He is not deceitful in any way, shape, or form. He is the perfect expression of purity. There is nothing in God that is lacking. There is nothing that has soiled or stained Him. He is absolutely pure, without flaw. He is a God of, of perfect justice, which means not only is He true, but He insists that other things be true as well. He will not stand for deceit or for wickedness or for selfishness. In fact, our very understanding of these concepts, love and truth and purity, find their origin in the nature of God. We know about love because God's love has been revealed to us through what He has made and through His Scripture. We would not know love otherwise. We would not know truth unless there was a God of truth who, who made sure that truth was, was kept holy and sanctified and pure. God is lacking nothing. That's something that we struggle to relate to. Because we are lacking every moment of our lives. Human beings always need something, whether it's another breath in our lungs or another beat of our heart so that the blood will get to the ends of our limbs, whether it is the sun for heat, whether it is food for sustenance, we all lack something. We are all in a constant state of need. And yet this God that we have come to worship today has zero needs. Everything in God sustains God. He is self-sustaining. He needs nothing outside of Himself. And that means He never envies anything. The Lord God does not have to covet what other people have because He is perfectly content in and of Himself. And in fact, all things belong to Him anyway. God cannot be bribed. We cannot twist His arm or offer Him an ultimatum because God is perfect. He loves everything that is noble and worthy of praise. But we also need to know that God hates everything that is wicked and vile. He is rightfully repulsed by what is gross and wrong and hurtful and selfish. He is so against sin that his very nature compels him to do something about evil and wickedness. He cannot sit by and let it happen unchecked. That is God. But in order to understand our relationship to God, we also have to understand some things about man, don't we? Man, after all, is by definition sinful and rebellious. That is at the core of who we are. We've just heard about the beautiful nature of God, but the nature of man does not match the nature of God. Man is incomplete. We are always lacking something. 
And that's because we have rebelled against the God whom we were designed to be perfectly fulfilled in. God designed us to worship Him and to trust Him. But because we have desired to do our own thing instead of listening to our God, we find ourselves far from our God. We are exiled from His presence because our defilement, our impurity, cannot be next to God's purity. <clears throat> Mankind has this tendency, universally, of entertaining a higher view of himself than he ought to. We always think that we deserve more than we should, that we have rights that we don't necessarily have. Man is defiant. Man is compelled towards personal freedoms, even when that personal freedom hurts himself or hurts others. The illustration, in fact, of the little toy plane that I just showed you doesn't even come close to expressing the broken relationship between God and man. Because the two pieces of wood that have broken apart from each other are neutral to one another. They don't mind if they're set next to each other or far apart. They don't care. But the relationship between God and man is not neutral. We are like two poles of a magnet that repel one another. Because of our wickedness, we cannot be near to God. In fact, we are enemies to God because of our sin. It's not something that everybody in the world realizes, but our sin does more than just put us in the penalty box. It makes us enemies to the glory of God's goodness and purity. God cannot be near to us, and we cannot stand to be near to Him. Look at what the Scripture says about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, verse 14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now this is the Apostle Paul speaking to those who have been transformed in the way we're going to talk about today by the grace of Jesus Christ. He says, when you have found yourself to be in God, when you have trusted in the Lord, do not be unequally yoked with non-believers. This, this applies mostly to marriage, that, that believers are to marry other people who believe in the Lord Jesus because when, when Jesus is your Lord and King, when you've trusted in Him, He is the greatest joy of your life. And it would not be fair to an unbeliever to try to marry them if they cannot understand the greatest joy of your life, if they cannot know the most important component of who you are. And so he says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. But the verse goes on to say, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? The darkness of man's heart has no place with the light of God's love. There is, there is enmity between God and man because of the sins that we have committed against Him. John 3.19, most of us are very familiar with John 3.16, which says that God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have eternal life. But then Jesus goes on to explain more to the man Nicodemus who He was speaking with, and He says in verse 19, And this is the judgment. The light, Jesus, has come into the world and people have loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And so is there, there's a serious problem with mankind, this, this serious wrongness in us. We wonder why it is so difficult to put an end to crime and, and to finally stop murder and theft because it is inherent in the heart of man. And so you can put your finger on the hole in the dam that is leaking, but eventually another one springs out somewhere else be, until you, you realize that it is overwhelming. It is more than man can do to overcome the problem with sin because it is in the heart of each of us. Romans 3 goes on to talk about how there is no one righteous. No, not even one person in the world who is, who is righteous and who seeks after God. 
We don't want to be near to God because the purity of God exposes our rottenness. We cannot hide from our own shortcomings when we come into the presence of a God who is so pure and perfect that His light illuminates our shortcomings. But as, as far apart as man is from God, the two are not irreconcilable. If God can make a way for sin to be punished and dealt with completely without man being condemned and, and consumed in the process, then it is possible that God and man can be brought together again. The bond can be restored. And this morning, we're going to see how the birth of Christ brings peace in the midst of the war between God's holiness and goodness and man's selfishness and evil. First, we're going to examine how Jesus, before he reconciled sinful man to God, reconciled the nature of man and the nature of God into one being, into him very, his, his own self. And then secondly, we're going to consider how the God-man, Jesus Christ, restored our relationship to God, binding men and God together by defeating sin and overcoming death. Now, you've likely heard uh, the phrase, to err is human. And I've proved that time and time again. But it wasn't always that way. It wasn't always human to be a failure, to sin, to rebel against God. God created mankind in his own image. The original man and the original woman were built free from sin, completely without impurity. And they dwelt with, man, with God in the Garden of Eden. At his creation, man was not God himself. He was not another God, nor was he equal to God. But he was pure and holy. And the image of God was able to be reflected in man and woman. Adam and Eve walked in the garden with God in the coolness of the morning and experienced real fellowship with him, a, a real united experience with God. Though they were not as great as their creator, they were pure. And though they did not know all that God knows, they didn't yet know sin. So their purity had not been defiled. And so it was still possible for them to walk unhindered in the presence of this God, their creator. The introduction of sin into the race of mankind, however, changed the bond that man had with God in a very sudden and terrible way. The nature of man, which was once beautiful and noble, was corrupted for every successive generation that would follow after the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. But originally, apart from that corruption, apart from the work of sin, the nature of man is not inherently sinful. It has only become sinful because sin has been allowed to invade the human race. So to bridge this radical gap between God and man, Jesus took a step towards sinful humanity by taking on an uncorrupted human nature. Now I want to be clear on this. Jesus did not, bring, did not take on the, the sinful human nature that we are experiencing right now, he took on the human nature that was free of sin that Adam and Eve experienced in the Garden of Eden. Look at 1 Timothy, verse 16 of chapter 3. God's word says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And then there was a saying that was popular in the early church, and, and Paul shares it with his friend Timothy. He says, He, meaning Jesus, was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. 
That is the wonderful Jesus that we celebrate at, at Christmas time. He's more than a baby in a manger. He is one who works reconciliation between God and man. The Bible affirms that Jesus was authentically a human. Now, I don't say the, the, the word fully human. I do that on purpose. Some people say that Jesus was fully God and fully man, but the word full Im implies the totality of a thing. And so when you say fully man, that makes it sound as if he was two fills, and that, that's weird. That doesn't really work out. But he was authentically and truthfully man, but at the same time, we're going to see in just a minute, he was authentically and truthfully God as well. John 1.14 says, And the Word, the Word is another name for Jesus Christ, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and he was beheld with his glory, the glory as of the only begotten Father, full of grace and truth. And so the Lord Jesus Christ came and took on flesh and became like you and I are. He had a limited body. He walked around in the earth and experienced life the way that we experience life. He humbled himself to accomplish this. You see, before this, Jesus was eternally spirit. Jesus is not a created being. He has always existed with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus did not have a physical body prior to this. But because of his great love for man and his desire to overcome sin and death, Jesus allowed himself to take on physical, material form. We have examples of this true humanity throughout Scripture. I'm just going to give you a few. They're in your note sheet there. In John 4, 6, Jesus is walking along and it says that he wearied of his journey. He grew tired. He had been walking a great distance and he wanted to take a rest. Now that, that's hard to imagine that God would ever grow tired and weary that he would need to take a rest. But because Jesus took on true humanity upon himself while he was on this earth. Jesus needed at times to stop and to breathe and to catch his breath and to take a rest and restore his weary body. In Matthew 9, 8, we're told that Jesus ate. So he needed food for strength. He needed to be nourished. The fact that he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights is a miracle because in the limits of his human flesh, he needed food like you and I need food. John 19, 26, Jesus grew thirsty when he was upon the cross. He asked that some water be given to him so that he might speak a few more words before he perished. And in John eleven thirty five, 35, it records that Jesus wept. He experienced sorrow the way that we experience sorrow. He was, he was destitute at the passing of his friend. Jesus wept. And so this Jesus was not just the image of a man or a spirit that only appeared to be a man. There have been several different strange theories throughout the history of, of, of mankind from, now and, or from the time of Jesus' birth until now where people tried to explain away Jesus coming into this world by making him appear to be something less than a man. They believe, well, physical flesh is itself corrupted, so Jesus could not have taken on physical flesh. Perhaps he was like a, a ghost or a hologram or perhaps the perfect spirit of, of Jesus borrowed the physical body of another person and just sort of inhabited him for a while. That's not how the scripture describes it at all. Jesus was authentically and truthfully a man. He walked as you and I walked. He experienced what you and I experienced. The one exception to that being, he never experienced personal sin. 
Because while Jesus was in a world that was filled with sin, sin was all about him, Jesus never broke the law of God himself. He maintained his purity from second one to the end of his life. Jesus was entirely pure, but in all other ways, Jesus was a man. Last week, we, we spoke about the immutability of God. We talked about how God, by his very nature, never changes. And that's important to understand because Jesus did not forsake his divine nature in order to take on a human nature. Jesus didn't stop being God and then start being man and then after the cross, go back to being God again. What we see in Scripture is that Jesus took on the nature of man and the nature of man and the nature of God existed side by side in the one person of God. This is very important because a God who is perfect can never change, right? We spoke about that last week. If something that is perfect changes, the only word it can go is to imperfection. A perfect God, if it changes, would have to change through corruption. And Jesus never was corrupted. He maintained his perfection forever and always will. But what Jesus did do is take a pure but limited nature, human nature, and add it to his God nature. And the two existed side by side in the person of Jesus Christ. While Jesus walked the earth, he, he acted based upon his human nature. He accepted a humbled state along with its limitations, eating, sleeping, sickness, having to grow, needing to learn and increase in wisdom. He held back the power of his divine nature, though it remained his. He did not express it, though he could have. And we do see little glimpses from time to time where he does express some of his godly nature as a man. We can see his, his reservations in expressing his godly nature on display in Matthew chapter 26. Go ahead and turn there if you want to. Matthew chapter 26. Judas is, is approaching. And in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is with the other 11 disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is praying fervently to God. He knows what is about to happen to him, and he knows he needs to be prepared for it. And so he is, he is seeking the Lord. He is asking God to give him strength and to ready his heart for what he's about to experience. And they see Judas Iscariot, the 12th apostle, or this 12th disciple, drawing near. But he's not alone, is he? He comes with a regiment of soldiers. And this group of men are ready to seize Jesus and to take him into custody so that they can put him on trial. Peter, one of the 11 apostles that are with Jesus, sees this unfolding and he cannot stand the thought of Jesus being imprisoned wrongfully and treated terribly. And so he rises, draws his sword and strikes out at the nearest guard, cutting off the man's ear. This is Jesus' reaction in verse 52 of Matthew 26. And then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than two, uh, twelve legion of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Do you realize here what Jesus is saying to His disciples? He's saying, I have the power to defend myself. I am not only man, I am also God in the flesh. And if I desired to, in an instant, all my foes would fall. I could uncreate these men with my words if I desired to because I am God in the flesh. And yet here we see that he is holding back that power. Why? Because the scripture needed to be fulfilled. Prophecies had been made and promises had been made that God needed to keep 
by sending his son, Jesus Christ. This is how God said he would do things. And Jesus knows that. And so as much as it pains him to go to the cross and, and suffer physically, as much as it pains him to take upon his own shoulders the sin of mankind, he's willing to go through it. He's humbling himself and taking upon our, our sin so that prophecy can be fulfilled and so can the justice of God the Father. So the Bible proves to us that Jesus is faithfully, truthfully, authentically man. We also see here that Jesus was authentically, faithfully, and truthfully God. God in the flesh. Colossians chapter 2.9, this is on the screen for you, says, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. See, there's a, there's a danger that we might fall into false doctrines. If other people teach us the wrong picture of who Jesus was, we might see Jesus for less than what he really was. And so Paul is warning the church at Colossae, saying, do not fall into these empty traditions that misrepresent the real God. In verse 9 it says, for in him, in Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhood or the Godhead bodily. All the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwells within Jesus. And you are complete in Him who is the head of all principality and power. Do you see what, what's being said there in Colossians? Do you see that it's expressing that in Jesus, the fullness of all that God is exists within Him. He is not just a specially inspired man. He is not some demigod or, or some risen angel. He is the fullness of the Godhead walking about on earth when his time was here. In him, the fullness of God dwells. I want you to consider for a second that the chorus of affirmation that comes from the different writers in the New Testament. I'm going to share with you one by one different key figures in the New Testament who plainly profess that Jesus was not just a prophet. He was not just a teacher or a mere man. He was not the best of what manhood has to offer. He was more than that. He was God in the flesh. Let's start with the Apostle Paul, who writes in Romans 9.5. He says, To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, speaking of Israel, from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, meaning that Christ descended from the Israelites. Describing Christ, he says, Who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Does the Apostle Paul think that Jesus is God in the flesh? He clearly says that he does right here in Scripture, doesn't he? Well, let's go and, and see about one of the 12 disciples. What about Thomas? Poor doubting Thomas, who did not believe that Jesus has re had resurrected because the other 10 disciples saw him face to face, but Thomas was not with them at the time. He returns and says, I will not believe until I can put my hand in the holes in his side, until I can put my hand in the holes in his hands and realize that this is indeed my friend, my Savior, Jesus. Shortly after that, Christ appears to Thomas. He shows himself to be in the flesh. He shows himself to be risen from the dead. And what does Thomas say in response in John 20, verse 28? Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Thomas saw Jesus as more than just a rabbi, as more than just his teacher or his compatriot, he saw Jesus as his God manifested in the earth to come and save him from his sin. Another disciple, John, 
would agree with this. In John 1.1, 1, 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word, meaning Jesus, was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Jesus has always existed, and He has always been the fullness of God in and of Himself. Listen to the author of the book of Hebrews, in chapter 1, verse 8, who says, But of the Son, meaning speaking of Jesus, and then he quotes Old Testament scripture and says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. The writer of Hebrews clearly states that that verse is about who? Jesus. And it calls Jesus by name God, doesn't it? Peter, another of the twelve disciples, writes in his second letter, chapter 1, verse 1, starts his whole letter off with this declaration. Simeon Peter a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. If anyone tries to convince you that Jesus was exalted above man but was not quite God, these are some great scriptures to bring them to. The men that we depend on to give us the New Testament word in one voice acclaim that Jesus is indeed God in the flesh. But no one can speak as authoritatively about Jesus as Jesus himself can speak of his own nature. And so John 8, verse 58, Jesus says to them, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now if you're not familiar with Old Testament scripture, that might seem a little confusing to you. What is Jesus saying there? What he's saying there is that even before Abraham was, before he was given life, before Abraham existed, Jesus existed. But it goes beyond that. He says, I am, before Abraham existed, I am, which evokes the personal name of the Jewish God, Yahweh. I am was the name that the burning bush gave to Moses when he encountered him in the wilderness. And Moses said, well, if I'm going to go and if I'm going to free all these people from the Egyptians, who am I going to tell them sent me? What is your name that I might share with them the God that has sent me on this mission? And God says, tell them that I am sent you. That is his, his personal name. So Jesus claims the same name that God has. He says that I am the I am. And you know how the people reacted to that? They didn't say, well, I must be misunderstanding this. Of course, that just means that he's himself. No, they tried to kill him. They tried to drag him away and stone him because it was against the Jewish law for anyone to claim godhood. Except for Jesus actually was God in the flesh. So he was breaking no law by saying that he was the great I am. Here again we see in John 10, verse 30, where Jesus says very plainly, I and my Father are one, one and the same. He displays here his divinity. And in a number of times, we see that divinity peeking out of his humanity as he heals the sick, as he casts out demons, as he uses his godly nature to rise his friend Lazarus from the dead. Jesus expresses again and again that he is Emmanuel, God with us. Divinity having taken on flesh. This is the mystery of glory that I spoke about when I quoted to you 1 Timothy 3.16. That Jesus, though he was uncreated, having always existed, though perfectly content and, and fulfilled in himself in heaven and in perfect unity with God the Father and with the Holy Spirit, chose to humble himself 
and take on a second nature, a human nature. And in order to accomplish a great victory that would give glory to God and would bless his believers forever and, and destroy this void that exists between us, he did this for us. You might hear of this doctrine sometimes referred to as the hypostatic union. It's a fancy word. You can drop that on your friends sometimes if you want to. The hypostatic union means that the two natures, God and man, exist simultaneously within the one person of Jesus Christ. Jesus was at the same time truly divine and truly human. And this means that Jesus is not a divided, schizophrenic character. Okay, This is not like 28 or something where Jesus can't stay one person and he just changes personalities from one place to another to defend himself. No, this is the, the fullness of divinity dwelling alongside the fullness of humanity. He is one person. As the Chalcedonian Creed states, his two natures are without confusion. They are without change. They are without division and without separation. Jesus is one. Many of the most dangerous doctrines in the world flow from a misunderstanding of this truth. Many cults would have us believe that Jesus stopped being God when he took on his human nature. Or they would have us believe that Jesus took on something less than a true human nature. But both of those things would be a defilement of the truth. If Jesus is not man, we have a serious problem because he cannot bear the sins of man if he is not man. And he cannot relate to us as he promises he does in Hebrews as our high priest if he has not experienced true manhood as we have. If he is not God, we have an even bigger problem. Because if Jesus is not God, then he's just a man like you and me. He doesn't have the power to overcome death and sin if he is not God. So Jesus must be at the same time both man and God. And it stretches the boundaries of what we can understand as limited human beings. But it is necessary for us to grasp at least the rudimentary basics of this truth so we will know who we worship and who we're depending on. And so in that silent night that we sang about a little while ago, the fullness of God dwelled in the form of a man. The 4th uh, and 5th century theologian Augustine of Hippo, probably heard of him, wrote a poem that captures the irony of the two natures of man and God being brought together in one human form. And it's not in his original language. It's been translated into English, so don't expect this poetry to be like, uh, you know, roses are red and violets are blue. But listen to, the, listen to the content of what Augustine writes for us here. Maker of the sun, he is made under the sun. In the father he remains. From his mother he goes forth. Creator of heaven and earth was born on earth under heaven. Unspeakably wise, he is wisely speechless. Filling the world, he lies in a manger. Ruler of the stars, he nurses at his mother's bosom. He is both great in the nature of God and small in the form of a servant. What a what an incredible irony, the birth of Jesus Christ, that someone beyond our capacity to understand his greatness would take a form which could be easily crushed in a moment. Takes a form that is itself dependent and fragile. And yet this is what God did for us, friends. Jesus is truly God 
and truly man at the same time. What does he do with this unique combination of natures? And we come upon our second point. Part one of our time together uh, in the Word today was that Jesus first brought himself in himself together the natures of God and man into one being. The second focus we want to tackle today is that the God-man Jesus Christ restored our relationship with God, binding man and God together by defeating sin and defeating death. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to, to Hebrews chapter 2. The book of Hebrews talks about how important our doctrine, our understanding of the work that Jesus did is to our faith in Him and our abiding in Him. When we forget the great things that He did, how He fulfilled the law, how He was the better sacrifice and the better high priest, then we tend to drift away from our God. So the book of Hebrews reminds us to keep our eyes on the truth of what Jesus was, what He is, and what He has done. And so in Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 10, says, For it was fitting that He, speaking of God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, Jesus, perfect through suffering. So just to explain what's going on here, God had a plan. God knew what needed to be done in order for us to bind God back together with man, to overcome the sin that separates us. And the way he was going to accomplish that was by allowing Jesus, who is also God, to come and suffer in the place of sinners. The suffering that we deserve to suffer because of our rebellion against God would be put upon the God-man, Jesus Christ. Skip down to verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So there's a great victory to be won here. What is it talking about when it says that he's going to defeat the one who has power of death? We realize by reading scripture that Satan, God's enemy, the fallen angel, has a degree of authority here in the world. And that death is rampant in the world because of our sin. But Jesus has every intention of destroying that enemy and can defeat his power over us by overcoming our sin and paying the debt of it in full. Let's continue to read verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he, meaning Jesus, helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of people. For because of him, he himself, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What the scripture is talking about here is the substitutionary sacrifice that Jesus was willing to become so that our sins might be paid in full. This is true atonement. In the Old Testament, we spoke last week about how the, the, the process of bringing a lamb or an ox to the altar in the temple was a way to train the people of Israel to realize that their sin was serious, that it causes death, but then also to train them to look forward to the perfect sacrifice that God would provide for them, Jesus Christ. And by taking on flesh, he entered our world so that he might be put to death, that he might pay a penalty he did not owe, 
so that we would be freed from a debt that we could not pay. At Bethlehem, the world was introduced to its Savior, to the spotless Lamb, Jesus Christ. Jesus began a journey that would lead him to the cross, where he would willingly lay down his life as a payment for our sin, rendering all those who trust in him free and clear from their guilt forever, changing their standing before God. Let me summarize this very concisely for you. Man stands as an enemy to God because of his sin. We have rebelled against God's law. Even in the smallest respect, if we disregard God's law, then we make ourselves an enemy to him. Secondly, God acts justly by sentencing man to death. God can't just say, well, you've sinned, you've offended me, you've offended truth and love. I'm just going to overlook that. Instead, because Jesus is perfectly true, because the Father is absolutely just, because the Holy Spirit cannot stand wickedness, they must punish sin. And so God acts justly by sentencing man to the death that he deserves. But then Jesus steps into humanity and lives free from sin. He never earns death for himself. He should not have had to die. And then Jesus willingly dies on behalf of sinful man. And in doing so, pays the full penalty that we owe to God. God then raises Jesus from the dead on the third day, declaring sin and death defeated. And then man, in response to this great work, places his faith in Christ and is himself placed into Christ. This is a wonderful mystery, friends. That through the work that Jesus did, we can stop being the polar opposite that rejects God and runs away from Him, and we can start being the child that belongs with the Father. Did the shepherds in the middle of the fields who were keeping watch of their flocks by night, did they know that this was God's plan for the little baby they went to visit that night? No, they didn't know this entirely. Though Mary knew that her little boy would in some way and somehow accomplish a great work of mercy for the nation of Israel, she likely did not know the details that Jesus would be crucified before he was 35 years old. And yet the birth of Jesus made all this possible by taking on a human nature, a nature that was like ours but free from sin. He was able to grow. He was able to become a man and become the worthy high priest that we so desperately needed. He was the one who could intercede between God and man, who stands between us like a mediator, who's willing to advocate on our behalf, who could offer an acceptable sacrifice to God for all of the sins that we had committed so that justice might be satisfied, but that grace might win the day. That acceptable sacrifice was his own body. And by giving it over to be crucified at Calvary, Jesus reunified God with the people who had been his true enemies through sin. As we close, why don't you go ahead and turn with me to, to John chapter 17. This will be the last passage we look at as we finish up today. John 17 is a wonderful prayer that Jesus lifts up in preparation as he readies himself for the work that he's about to do on the cross. It says in chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus prays, oh, rather verse 17, starting in verse, 
Uh, chapter 17, verse 6. I'll get this right eventually, guys. Verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. The word manifested points us back to Christmas morning. Because the word manifest in the Greek, it's hephan erose, means to make known, to clarify, to cause to become apparent. Jesus manifested the glory of God by being born into our earth and by walking in perfect unity and lockstep with the law of God. He brought the truth of God to life. Later on in John 17, verse 20, it says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through your word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Isn't this an ex a beautiful expression of the unity that God desires to have with rotten kids like us? That we in every way, shape, and form have broken His rule, have disrespected His rightful authority, have disregarded His perfect love, and have pursued false loves, empty loves, instead of His perfect love. And yet this God of incredible mercy and grace has come back to me. I will pay whatever it costs to make you mine again because I love you. This is completed in his glory. Jesus united himself to mankind so that mankind could be united to God forever. Now I want us all to remember as we conclude here today that verse in Hebrews that I spoke of earlier. It said that Jesus did this to bring many sons to glory. While the sin of the first Adam condemned all of mankind and put us all under the curse of sin. The grace of Jesus Christ will save many from that penalty of death. Not everyone will be saved. And so the question is this morning, are you in Christ Jesus? As you sit in the seat where you are now and the truth of the gospel has been expressed to you and explained to you, do you know for a fact that you have repented of your sin, that you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and that you have received with a grateful heart the grace that Jesus intends to give to you? Throughout the world right now, people are pouring into churches, many of them people who don't normally go to church, and we're grateful for that. We rejoice at the fact that Christmas is one of those days where people who don't normally come to hear the, the word preached can come and hear that word. And I, I imagine many people are coming thinking that it's Jesus' birthday. I want to give him a gift of my presence. I want to be there and give him attention. But have you considered that perhaps being compelled to come to church today was not you seeking to gift something to the Lord, but was rather the Holy Spirit working in your heart to get you someplace so that he could give you the one gift that you need more than anything else. The amazing grace of Jesus Christ is at work even now in the hearts 
the hardened hearts of sinners like us, changing them, softening them, humbling them, so that this message of glory can finally be seen with clear eyes. I pray that if you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus, if he has not shown you that you can be his through grace, that you would receive that gift today. It's not a small thing to say yes to that. And a lot of people think that being saved and receiving Jesus means that we just give him a high five and say, I believe in Jesus, and then we go upon our merry way. But this is something greater. We, we forgot to mention in our, in our announcements today that we have some good news this week as well. Uh, two people that are very dear to us, uh, Aubrey, not for long, Linder, and Terry Thind are, are now officially engaged to be married. So... That's not an easy thing, okay? Marriage is tough. Marriage is a commitment. And it's not for a small amount of time. It's for life. In many ways, the commitment that the two of you are going to make to each other is like the commitment to say yes to Jesus Christ. Because it's not yes for a moment. It's not, yes, I like you today because my heart's stirred up and I'm emotional. It's yes because I see that I was put here for a purpose and that purpose is to glorify you, God, and I've been ignoring it my whole life. I've been running from it, but now I see in truth that I cannot continue ignoring you. God, you have pursued my heart. I want to be yours. And if that is you today, if you want Christ to be your Savior and your King, I pray that you would make it known to us. We would love to celebrate with you today. We would love to pray with you and help you in the first steps of your journey to become a disciple of Jesus Christ so that you might proclaim to others the truth that Jesus is more than just a historical figure, that he is man and God in one person, come to redeem all who would trust in him. There's a, a card in the back of your seats there that is for prayer. If you've got a prayer request or a praise you want to share with the church, fill that card out. But there's also a place on that prayer card where you can mark I'd like more information about starting a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Would someone please come and meet with me? We would love to contact you this week. We would love to set aside the things that we've got going on and make sure that you know what it means to be saved because that is the desire of our hearts. First Family Church exists to make disciples for Jesus Christ. So this could be the greatest gift you've ever received and it could happen today. But it is our whole prayer that that the Lord would use this church to rise up believers to greater maturity, to greater understanding and appreciation of who Christ is, and to send them out into the world so that we can share with those who do not yet know this amazing story of grace, that others might, for the first time, say yes to Christ and join the family of God. We pray that that is you today if you do not yet know Christ. If not, we pray that the Lord has given you something very important to think about and to mull over. We pray that the Holy Spirit would continue to work in your heart and in your life to reveal to you just exactly what you need and to show you that it's been provided in, in Jesus Christ alone. Would you please bow with me as we close with a word of prayer and our worship team's going to come up and we're going to sing some more songs together before we go.